Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. This is the story of the Watt. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. This is supposed to be a quiet week, but somehow it isn't. And we will have one of the people... Uh, who knows something about the center of this storm, the Aaron Rodgers storm. Uh, we're going to have Devontae Adams as a guest later on in the podcast. I uh, look forward to hearing from him. When I take the interview with him on Monday, uh, he was pretty good talking about Rodgers, and he's promoting a, uh, a fitness program that I also think is really, really good, uh, along with Justin Jefferson. So, you will hear from Devontae Adams later in the podcast. Uh, for now, Paul Burmeister, my friend from NBC, and I are going to talk about some of the news of the day um, in football. And there really is a lot of news. And, and I focused a lot in my column this week, Paul, on, uh, on the Miami Dolphins and their draft and their trade and, you know, sort of the boldness of the, of the general manager and the and and the head coach and and let's start there i find it really interesting right now like really interesting when i covered the nfl started covering the nfl in the 80s there were not many trades i mean there were some trades on draft day to pick up draft picks for for other things and all that but there really weren't very many trades and now it's like a trade of palooza you know, as I say in my column, that Chris Greer, the GM uh, of the Dolphins, since he has had sole control of the personnel side, has made 28 trades in 28 months. And so I just think the game really has changed. And a lot of people basically have decided, hey, we are going for it right now. I thought you made a really good point that speaks to that in your article on Monday, Peter, when you said what the passing game is not a football on the field this attitude about trading and the courage and the boldness when it comes to trading, it's the same thing for rosters and personnel is what the passing game has done to football. And you also mentioned that the modern GM, not just in football, but in any sport, needs four things. Uh, I liked all four, but one of them you mentioned was he can't be afraid. And maybe the GMs of the former years, past decades, when you were first starting to cover the league, Maybe they weren't afraid, but maybe it was just like you weren't supposed to think about giving away a first round pick. That just wasn't part of the, the thought process or the vernacular. And now, whether it's that they're not afraid or whether they just turned a corner to a new way of thinking, this is part of what they think about every offseason, every winter. What could we get for that first round pick? And it's completely changed the game in terms of the way we cover the draft and what they're doing leading up to the draft. I think, you know, look, this is this is just to me what I'm about to say is kind of crazy. But I went back and I figured out in Chris Greer's three drafts, 19, 20 and 21. OK, he has either acquired or traded away 19 picks in the first two rounds. And a lot of people would say, well, geez, that's crazy. Why are you doing all this and, and all that? But I mentioned this, I talked to Bill Parcells last week, and I didn't put stuff from him in the column. I very well could have. I really had a lot of um, a lot of stuff. But one of the things that I said to him was, I said, Bill, you know, when I covered you guys in the 80s, because I covered the Giants for four years in the George Young, Bill Parcells era, 
And I said, when I covered you for four years, basically, I, I said, I don't know how many trades George Young made, but, and I told him Chris Greer's made 28 and 28 months. And he goes, George probably didn't make 10, you know, the whole time that he was general manager of the Giants. That just wasn't the way people did business. And that really is what has changed. And when I say don't be afraid, I think here's the point I would make. And let's refer to the trade this year when uh, Miami traded from three to 12. Uh, and, and look, you've got to hand it to John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan too. History will tell the tale of whether they were right or wrong. But almost in any case, I don't even view this with the Dolphins, quite honestly, as is being a gutsy trade. If somebody offers you to move down, you're not going to take a quarterback, okay? And somebody offers you to move down nine spots, two future ones and a future three, you'd almost be committing malpractice if you don't do it. And, and so then they're able to come back in because Brian Flores, when they agreed to that first trade, Flores said, okay, we have got to now get it basically into the top eight because they felt like in order to be sure that they were going to get a weapon, and I think their weapon, they wouldn't say this, but it sounded to me like the order of receivers for them uh, was Jalen Waddell and then Jamar Chase and Devontae Smith. So it sounded to me like they felt if they could get up a little higher than eight, that they would be assured of being able to get Jalen Waddell uh, like it's six or seven. They got to six, they got Jalen Waddell, and it all worked out. But, you know, Jimmy Johnson told me one thing last week, and I think Jimmy is one of the guys who really broke the logjam of trading. Uh, because when he came to the Cowboys in 1989, um, and look, Jerry Jones is a wheeler dealer anyway, but when you have a coach who desperately wants to take one of the great resources on a bad team, which in this case was Herschel Walker, if you want to take one of the resources and try to sell it for a ransom, and they were able to do that, that was a huge trade to get them ready to be great in Dallas. And as Jimmy Johnson said, hey, I think what Chris Greer has done is good. I like his trades. Uh, I like the players they've picked and collected. But, you know, doesn't mean anything if you don't win. And Brian Flores said exactly the same thing to me. A number of things jump out here, Peter. Number one, and I'm going to reference that list that you made of four things about what a pro GM needs right now. Your first was know when you have leverage and then use it. And at some point of this process, a giant light bulb went off in their head down there in Miami. Hey, sitting at three, we're not going to take a quarterback. And a number of people in the league desperately want a quarterback. There are a number that are going to go in the top 10. We have leverage on our side, maybe more than we ever will. So they applied that very well, trading back and then back up. And what, what also stood out to me when I was reading your article and listening to you right now, this is a head coach in Coach Flores and Brian Flores and a GM and Chris Greer. Basically, when figuring out, okay, we're going to take this trade, but then we have to know, in the other hand, we can get up to a certain point in the draft. They're kind of doing a mock draft in their head the same way we do. They're looking at the rest of the teams in the top 10, like, okay, who might take a receiver? And clearly they were stuck on Detroit after they lost Galladay and a number of players are like, they might take a receiver there. If yeah. we don't get ahead of them, we're not going to get one of the guys or the guy that we want. So leverage, yes, they realize that, but kind of doing a highly educated mock draft when figuring out where they were going to get up to, just like we all do in the days leading up to the draft. I think what uh, Chris Greer believed, and we'll talk about leverage in a second, but I think what Chris Greer believed is that the first three picks are going to be quarterbacks. We don't want a quarterback. So now – what order will the players go in after that? I believe that the Dolphins thought chances were better than 50-50, that Atlanta would take, um, you know, the tight end, Kyle Pitts. And if they didn't, they're going to take a quarterback. So 
I, I just got the feeling that they weren't all in on Pitts. You know, they have a really good offensive pass-catching tight end right now in Chris Kosicki. And so I think they were more interested in a weapon. Now let's go to number five in Cincinnati. They thought that it was more likely than not that Jamar Chase would be the pick there. Jamar Chase or Panay Sewell. Now, for whatever reason, and this is their thing, they were not going to take Panay Sewell in this situation if it was a situation where it was Waddle, Devontae Smith, Panay Sewell. So now they figure, and this is hard to know a month before the draft, but I think even at the time, this is what they figured, and it is how it panned out. I think they figured that if we get to eight, we're going to get one of the three receivers, but it's not going to be our choice. If we get to six, we are going to get one of the receivers, and it's likely to be our choice. And in talking to uh, Brian Flores and, and Chris Greer, Flores especially, I'm going to write a little bit about this in my column next week, to hear him talk about the problems that Jalen Waddell is going to present to a defense and the problem that he is in either punt or kick returns. I believe he's going to do one of those uh, most likely as a rookie. And so in, in, in listening to him talk about the problems they present, as he said to me, he said, I look at as a defensive coach, I look at a player who is going to require two players on defense to neutralize them. If you put one player on them, I know that he's going to make enough plays in a game to have a huge impact on the game. Let's talk for a second about leverage. This really sticks out in my mind. Um, and it's John Lynch is involved in both stories. In 2017, Lynch, Kyle Shanahan, Jed York of the 49ers, allowed me to sit in their draft room and watch them have their first draft. It took a lot of cajoling. Uh, Kyle wasn't the biggest fan of this, but they ended up allowing me to sit in there. And so I'll never forget this. About, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes before the start of the draft, might have been 15, I forget. But shortly before the start of the draft, they got Ryan Pace on the phone the general manager of the Bears. At the time, the 49ers were picking second and the Bears were picking third. So the 49ers had a very good feel that uh, that they knew that Miles Garrett was going to be the first pick in this draft. Okay, So they knew that at number two, they wanted Solomon Thomas and uh, the uh, defensive lineman from Stanford. The Bears... They didn't know what they wanted, but they had had a deal with them. The Bears were very consumed with moving from three to two. And right before they connected again, Parag Marate, the, the cap guy, and uh, the guy who's a veteran of many drafts in San Francisco, uh, Marate, uh, Shanahan, and Lynch were all in Lynch's office. And Lynch basically said to Parag, he said, why don't you call uh, Ryan Pace, and let's see if we can get something a little extra, a little finisher out of this. Uh, let's get a th try to get a three, an extra three out of this, and say, hey, we're, you know, we're really thinking about this, blah blah blah. So Parag called him, and Ryan Pace agreed to give him the three. So let's fast forward to this year, and on March four, this is this is seven, eight weeks before the draft. On March 4, John Lynch calls Chris Greer and says, uh, we want to move up from 12 to 3. I know it's a valuable pick. We'd be willing to give you our number ones in 22 and 23, plus this year's one to move up to number three. So the Dolphins were really happy with that. I mean, that's a great offer right there. And so now Flores and Greer talked about it, and Greer said, 
uh, Flory said to Greer, we've got to get back up to try to get the receiver we want. So they worked on that, worked on that, worked on that. And finally, they thought they had a good chance to make a trade with Philly. And Chris Greer called John Lynch back. This is maybe two weeks or so after Lynch made the offer. It said, listen, I want to be totally upfront with you. It's going to take a little bit more to, to do this if we're going to do it now. Um, we need to get a three either this year or in the future uh, to get this deal done now. So Lynch, his heart kind of sank because he already was thinking, man, we're giving way too much to move nine spots. And, you know, a lot of people inside the 49ers said, no, say no, we, we don't want to do that. But Lynch, I think, knew that there was value in having this deal done early so that they could focus on which quarterback they were going to take. The last thing that John Lynch wanted to do was sit at 12 and let the fates decide what he was going to do for his quarterback. So he agreed to give him the three. And that's what ended up getting the deal done. But that, to me, is when a general manager uses leverage. And look, here's the other part of this that is so interesting. John Lynch really likes Chris Greer. He doesn't look at him like, oh, man, he, he, he did a stick-up move with me. And, uh, you know, he held me hostage. No, he's been there before. He knows that when you're a general manager with something that another team really wants, well, you've got to try to maximize that asset. And that is, to me, what the Miami Dolphins did this year in maximizing the asset of the third pick in the draft. The bottom line is he needed those good relationships to come through. And I, I think he shared with you, um, you know, it's not just about us getting a good deal. We need both sides to feel like yeah. they got a good deal and like they wanted something. Then you can come back in a year or five years or six years and maybe do another big deal like that because of the way they interacted. Uh, one other leverage thought, Peter, and I think he nailed it with the number one part about at number three and teams needed quarterbacks. Second part of that leverage in that deal with Philadelphia and also has to do with quarterbacks. I think they knew when they thought about getting back into the top 10, up, up there to six, that Philly is probably thinking, you know what, we're going to try this with Jalen Hurts this year, but if it doesn't work, we need some picks to maybe trade up and get a guy that we really love next year. So the main leverage was the quarterback need this year, but they also knew the league were probably assuming Philadelphia was planning for the year ahead as well. That was a form of using leverage too, and also kind of uh, connecting dots and thinking that Philadelphia could possibly be in the game for, for gaining picks for a quarterback move next year. Look, I understand Howie Roseman is a punching bag in Philadelphia right now. I forget if it was at a Flyers game or a Sixers game a couple of weeks ago, a fire Howie chant went up. Um, and so, you know, being a general manager after your uh, franchise, 39 months after you win a Super Bowl, and now it has totally disappeared into thin air. The coach isn't there. The quarterback's not there. The MVP of the Super Bowl run isn't there. So you look at that, quite honestly, and you say, wow, the general manager needs to pay the price. Maybe he needs to walk the plank. But look and see what Howie Roseman has done now in putting the Philadelphia Eagles in position basically to own the 2022 NFL draft. They have their own first-round pick. They have Miami's first-round pick from the trade from six back to 12 this year. Uh, and if Carson Wentz plays 75% of the snaps in Indianapolis, they will have Indianapolis's first round pick next year. And, and look, even if Wentz doesn't play that many snaps, they'll get Indianapolis's second round pick. But let's just say for the sake of argument, because I think we all agree that Carson Wentz is going to be the starting quarterback in Indianapolis and will play at least three quarters of the season, that they're going to have three first-round picks next year. And right now they have a quarterback in Jalen Hurts that, in my opinion, is in the exact same position that Dak Prescott was in in 2016, which is he, he was drafted and never having any idea that very soon 
after he was drafted, the team was going to ask him to start. But Tony Romo got hurt, and he played so well that Tony Romo couldn't get his job back, and he's now the long-term quarterback of the Cowboys. Jalen Hurts right now is in position after being the second-round pick in 2020. He's in position to do the exact same thing. He could make it impossible on the Philadelphia Eagles. If he plays great, let's say they win 11 or 12 games this year, and uh, he plays great, that they're not going to be looking for a quarterback and thus could really fortify their team, which is getting really old in some spots. They can rebuild their offensive line. They can do a lot of things to help their team if they don't need a quarterback. But if they do need a quarterback, there will be no team in the NFL as rich potentially uh, as the Eagles would be next year. The only X factor in that is that my feeling is I think the Dolphins are going to be above 500. I think the Eagles have a good chance to be 500 or better. And I think Indianapolis is going to be above 500. So let's just say that those three things happen. Then that means that every one of these picks is going to be like 17 or lower. And if that's the case, all of a sudden now, it could be difficult if there is an absolute golden boy quarterback at the top that they want to go get. They may not have the ammunition to go get him. And it's hard to know the names right now. We can speculate, but there will be a couple of quarterbacks that are highly coveted in that top 10 that people want to go up there and get. Bringing this back to Miami to put a bow on it. We talk about high picks. I feel like the Greer and Flores team is pretty new, Peter, but as as they mentioned to you in your conversation in Miami, this has happened. Like these picks that we've made together these last three years, I mean, we're going to make noise or, mo- or not make noise based off of what these picks we've just made in these last three drafts do. They've had 13 picks, 13 in the top three rounds in their three drafts together. Would you call the Dolphins the team that is closest to chasing the Bills right now? or at this point, and you can change your mind, a lot of months to go, would you put the Patriots as the runner-up? I'd put the Dolphins ahead of the Patriots right now. But again, I mean, if Tua is shaky, Tua Tagovailoa, the second-year quarterback, if he's shaky, that and he might be, that is going to make all the difference. Um, But here's what has happened to me, Paul. I, I think what is so interesting is that There's a very good chance that when Miami starts this season or maybe a month into the season, that they are going to have four of their five starting offensive linemen have been drafted in the last two drafts. Because as of right now, you know, you've basically got Austin Jackson, who was the, um, when they traded Minka Fitzpatrick to Pittsburgh, They got the 18th pick in the draft last year for that. That's Pittsburgh's pick. They gave, they took Austin Jackson. They got two other uh, linemen in the draft last year who are now starting guard and starting tackle. Solomon Kinley, the starting guard, is, I think, going to be a really good one. And this year, you know, our good friend Liam Eichenberg, you know, was picked in the second round. They traded up, I think, to number 42 to get him. And what's so interesting about Eichenberg is, I, I mean, so many people late in my discussion with them kept saying, put Eichenberg in the first round. This is an absolutely steady Eddie guy who's going to start 10 years in the NFL. And so, look, Eichenberg probably moves in as a guard this year. But just imagine, you know, if, if you look at, let's just say, Four-fifths of the offensive line, the quarterback, the biggest offensive weapon, they've all been on the team for 12 months. And so, and and look, Flores and Greer are very, very clear. These picks, they're our team. And, uh, you know, if if the line is leaky or Tua stinks or whatever, they're in trouble. So... You know, a lot of things have to go right. But right now, I'd put the Dolphins number two in the division. We talked about the offensive line. If you throw in Waddle and Tua, over half of the starters on offense will be from the last two drafts, which is uh, 
which is really something that says a lot about the youth and, and how they've drafted down there. What's your number one takeaway? Your, your number one thing, you're going to watch the Dolphins maybe a little bit differently in September based off the conversation that you had with those guys recently. Getting Jalen Waddell involved early, often, and all over the field. Um, they believe that he's going to make Tua 10 or 15% better. Um, and we'll see. I mean, my only problem with receivers very high in drafts, I understand why uh, everybody loves receivers. But all I can think of is think back to uh, 2017. Was it 2017 or 18? I think 2017, where it's Davis, Williams, Ross. Okay. Tennessee, LA Chargers, Cincinnati. They take receivers at five, seven, and nine. And none of them have panned out to be like top 10 picks. Mike Williams is a good player. Um, and Corey Davis is a good player. But, I mean, you look at all of the depth of receiving in the last, say, three drafts that, you know, the, I, I did something in my column about two, three weeks ago in which I said that of all the receivers drafted in the first and second rounds since 2016, that's five drafts. This was before this year's draft. In five drafts, it's, it's almost unarguable that the better depth is found in round two versus round one. And, and so I sort of look at this and I say, I, I, Hey, listen, I, I can't knock Jalen Waddle. I can't knock Devontae Smith. I can't knock Jamar Chase. But, you know, each every time a receiver gets picked in the top 10, I mean, it is, it's at best 50-50 whether that guy is going to be a big impact player. But that's Miami really needs Jalen Waddle to make some explosive plays, I think, to really help Tua get his footing as the uh, Miami long-term quarterback. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada -ba -ba -ba. At participating McDonald's. If the defense can stay right where it was, Peter, get a little bit better than last year, it's the kind of offense that doesn't need to be a top 10 offense. If they're a middle-of-the-pack offense with a defense that played the way it did a year ago, they can be players uh, in January. My, my one asterisk on the defense is that Byron Jones just has to be better. They paid him a jillion dollars in free agency from Dallas, and he was just a guy last year. So he's got to be better this year. You mentioned there's some news going on this week. Uh, we, we, we've gotten very used to, to news coming at any, any week or any month in the NFL calendar. Schedule coming out tomorrow. And I thought you brought up a very good point I've been thinking about with the opening game, being in Tampa on the first Thursday night of the season, and whether it would be Buffalo or Dallas. And you're speculating there. I think they're both very good guesses. How do you think that thought process happens? And which one of those two games do you think ultimately will be the pick? Yeah, I mean, you know, I feel, feel kind of bad that uh, – I mean, by the time people listen to this, many of them, they're going to know who, who the first game is. But I picked Dallas or uh, or Buffalo because I just think that the NFL wants to have a huge number on that first Thursday night game. They're, I wouldn't, I don't know if the right word is obsessed, but they really, most years 
when uh, in the past, in the past, say, decade, when they're thinking about the first game of the year, they don't think necessarily about putting the best game in there, okay? They think about, you know, maybe we could save the best game for a Sunday or a Thursday night, you know, maybe uh, later in the year. But but this year, I think they want to take the best home game for uh, for Tampa. Obviously, if they were going to take the best game, it would be Tampa at New England. That's the premier game on the NFL schedule this year. Tom Brady going back to Foxborough. But I think my whole feeling was there's some good teams on that schedule. You know, the Giants could be interesting, the Bears. Um, and, and, you know, there's some good possibilities for games. But you either have to put America's team or you have to put the best team to be traveling to Tampa. I mean, Buffalo easily could go in there and win that game. Uh, and and I think the the NFL for everybody who said, well, what does it matter? I mean, what, here's what matters: the NFL needs this game to be a game in the fourth quarter, because the way the ratings are done, if everybody turns the game off at you know 10:30, you know, in the middle of the third quarter, you know, the number is gonna is gonna be lousy, and it's going to really reflect poorly on the NFL. So they're trying to do this, this decision that the NFL made in putting a huge game on the Thursday night is about putting the best foot forward after an odd different uh, season in 2020. And then after a kind of a shaky at times off season. It's intriguing because if, if the number one goal is to have a close game in the fourth quarter, Buffalo would be, the better choice. Buffalo, I think, is a better team right now than Dallas. And it's more of a it's more likely that it would be tight in that fourth quarter. But there's always that part that you can't ignore that Dallas, whether they're 0 and 0 or 2 and 10 or 10 and 2, it's a giant number right away. And you hope it's close at the end, but it's hard to turn down Dallas in that situation just because of what they bring to the ratings. And I think the one other factor to consider is that, and look, I am no TV nerd. I'm no ratings nut, but you you just said something that I absolutely totally agree with, and that is, think about this for a second. The rating basically is the average of how many people watch the game over, you know, three, three and a half hours. And you've got to figure that if the game kicks off at whatever it is, 8.20 or 8.30, the game kicks off at 8.30, what has got the best chance to be the biggest number at 8.30? To me, that's Dallas. Easy. But that isn't necessarily what you want. You want that number to be big throughout the night. So I think probably what Howard Katz and his broadcast team try to figure out is, is there going to be an avalanche of viewers at 8.30? And will that be, will that even out even if it's, you know, uh, 30 to 13 at the end of the third quarter and all the Dallas folks are turning off their TVs. Hey, as long as we're talking about Tampa, let's, let's stay in Florida and move around a little bit to Jacksonville. Interesting news with Urban Meyer signing Tim Tebow. A lot of opinions out there about that. Uh, I have one as well. Your thoughts on, uh, on Tebow possibly, or it sounds like likely being signed there. My thought is that every team gets to bring 90 players to training camp. And uh, every year the NFL allows teams, for instance, to sign an international player to bring him to training camp to try to get some goodwill with, uh, you know, football people, say, in Germany uh, and, and, and in other countries. And so... And so to me, the 90th player, Tim Tebow will be the 90th player on the, on the roster in Jacksonville. And to me, this is like giving Urban Meyer um, his security blanket. This is, this is a total absolute experiment. And 
I doubt he would make the team. Who knows? Maybe they keep him around uh, till the la- till their uh, you know their their final cut. I don't know, but I think this is simply about trying to see if they can get a guy on their team who at a at a at a poor position who can do something that other guys on their roster can't do right now. And I understand it's very unlikely. He's 33 years old. He's never in his life had to be a blocker. Okay, so there's a whole different way for Tim Tebow now to have to act to make this team. I just, I think a lot of people view this as as a farce, uh, as basically bad comedy and all that. Um, I mean, the 90th guy on the roster, my half of my opinion is who cares? The other half of my opinion is when you sign Urban Meyer to be your head coach, you have to say to him, coach, this is your team. It's your roster. Have at it. Right. I, I, I kind of think of it first and foremost here. And I try to put myself inside that locker room and I think about what are the guys who are the established veterans, the stars, the core of that team, what are they going to think? And I back up a little bit, and I, I believe, and I'm not inside that locker room, but I think a lot of these players look at a college coach, college coach coming into the NFL and say, okay, that worked with the kids. You did a good job with the 18 to 22-year-olds. Let's see how you do with these grown men. So right. it's a little bit of a glass uh, empty instead of, or half empty instead of full, I think, with, with the way some of these veterans look at it. And then if that coach brings in someone who was a, you know, a poster boy, perfect kind of player for them over a decade ago who hasn't done anything in the league when he had his chance. And as you mentioned, is 33 years old, hasn't even been in a training camp um, for many seasons. I worry that he might lose a little bit of credibility in the locker room with the vets thinking, could he bring this guy in, you know, and hey, maybe it works out. Maybe he He's a contributor. Maybe uh, he's not only a player on an up-and-coming team. Maybe it's a great story. But I think right now there are people inside his locker room who are shaking their head at that, who may have already been shaking their head at thinking about a college coach who was terrific there, thinking the same way was going to work in the NFL. I mean, it that very much could be, Paul. But I guess my point would be I think if when Urban Meyer – starts to figure out maybe this is a distraction or this is a dumb idea. I think he's going to go to Tebow and say, Hey, it's not working. Um, I mean, urban Meyer's a smart guy and I believe, you know, this is just my gut feeling. I believe he probably at some point asked Bill Belichick what it was like to have Tim Tebow you know, in camp with the Patriots that year. And, uh, and, and, and look, I don't know what Belichick said to him, obviously, because I don't even know if this conversation took place, but knowing their relationship, I bet he asked him about it. And my gut feeling is Belichick would have said, you know, you got to watch out when, when your third string quarterback is like the guy who everybody comes to training camp to see. I just think if it if it gets to that point and if it becomes a legitimate distraction, I think you'll get rid of it. Hey, just like you in your conversation with Jimmy Johnson, he talked about the picks and the trades, the Dolphins. His last line was, hey, if, if you win, it's all good. The picks are great if they win. If Tim Tebow yeah. can play, if he's a player in training camp and the players see they might help him win, it'll be seen as a great move. Yeah, and so I, I think – because the NFL is covered so massively, my feeling is that when something like this happens, people are really going to uh, kind of go nuts about it. That's what happened. You know, let's let it flame out a little bit. I think the first two or three days at training camp or, you know, veteran mini camp, everybody is going to say, wow, there's Tim Tebow. But after a while, I just I think stuff like that fades away. But we'll see. More Florida back to Tampa. Tom Brady this week uh, on a Zoom call with the NFLPA said that uh, kind of sent a message that he wants wants the players to boycott a lot of the offseason, the non-mandatory camps. 
uh, said we should not have overly competitive drills in May and June. Where do you think this is going? That's a really good question. Um, I think that Brady's words are exceedingly important and valuable to the union. Um, on the other hand, this, you know, I, I think, of course, a player doesn't have to go if the workouts are called voluntary. But I think the NFLPA is on a very slippery slope here because when they had a vote on the new CBA in March 2020, and it was going to be very close because a bunch of established players, J.J. Watt, Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers, they hated the, this deal because it contained uh, the NFL's ability to have a 17th regular season game. Players, veteran players hated that. And so the NFLPA appealed to a wide swath, including minimum salary players, to say basically, listen, you are, you know, after, you know, in your first year, the minimum salary is going to go up over $100,000. So, you know, we think that we are taking care of the rank and file. And the rank and file push this over the top, in my opinion. They, this, this passed by 60 votes. It got 1,019 votes. And there was a big opposition, obviously, but it passed, in my opinion, because so many uh, you know, practice squad players and low guys on the roster, that those guys wanted this to pass because it was better for them. So now, how can you, as the union, tell those guys, stay away in the spring when you can catch a coach's eye and you can really improve your chances to make a team? That's why, in my opinion, with all due respect to what Tom Brady said, to J.C. Treader, who I think is out for the best interest of the players, no question. If I am an end-of-the-roster guy, I'm going into uh, do my voluntary workouts every day. I just am. And I don't view it as union crushing or, uh, you know, a scab or anything like that. I view it as, hey, listen, there are times when we got to take care of ourselves. And this right now is one time where I've got to take care of myself. Absolutely. And like you, I, I mean, I think Tom Brady's voice matters. And I don't think he brought up a point that was that wasn't valid or shouldn't be considered, but there are only so many players in the Tom Brady stratosphere. You know, he's, he's up there with Aaron Rodgers and Russell Wilson, but let's say, let's include Tom with the established stars and veterans who know they're going to be on the team. There aren't that many, but there's double digit on each team. Let's look at the rest of the roster. You have core players who are maybe backup tight end, backup linebacker, big contributors on special teams. What's their fear? We don't want to be expendable. So we contribute the last couple of seasons, but we know there's younger, there's cheaper out there. They want to prevent that. So they need to be in the building to hang on to what they have. Then you have the bottom part of the roster, the rookies, the guys who've never been there. They're going to take every chance they get. They ought to, to be inside the building and do everything the coaches are asking. So it's just not reality to have all the players thinking this way when the majority of the roster is afraid of getting cut or just trying to make the team, Peter. And as I was reading about what Brady said and what you wrote about it, one of my former teammates came to mind. One of my favorite guys I played with in Iowa named Danon Hughes, wonderful wide receiver, made it with the Kansas City Chiefs, special teams captain, usually the fifth wide receiver they kept. Um, I remained close with him throughout. And he said, Paulie, I'm afraid of getting cut every single day. I walk into my, I walk into the locker room, and I just, I, I, I exhale and believe that my locker, that my name is still there. And for a while, I thought maybe he was embellishing. But the more I got to know the league and the more I understand the dynamics, I think he was right. He was an established core veteran. He had a nice role, but he wasn't so high up that he knew he was going to be there. I, I think the fear of getting cut every single day drove him to make it those five years. And that was a while ago. But I think that feeling is still alive and well with most of the players in the NFL. And because those guys are there and because they matter to the roster, 
Uh, I don't know if Brady's words will will go the way that he wants it to go because most of the guys have to be there if the coaches want them there. Look, all the all the veteran guys are going to listen to him. The guys making eight, ten, twelve million who know their spot is secure, they'll go work out at Gold's Gym wherever they live or whatever, you know. So, but but again, I had a coach tell me last week. Coach called me and said, "What do you think of all this?" And, and we talked for twenty minutes, and and he goes, I, I, "I'll just tell you," he said, "I." I don't expect to see our veterans, the high-profile guys, at all uh, until um, the the mandatory mini camp in June. But he goes, if you are a young kid, and and basically, Paul, as you know, there's a per diem in the NFL. It's two hundred and thirty-five dollars per player per day that he goes in for these workouts. So let's say you go in four days a week. Basically talking about you are either a minimum salary guy or an undrafted free agent rookie this year trying to make this team. You you have not made money yet, and you need to try to make a little bit of money. And if you go in there, the team puts you up at a local hotel. You know, if you go in there to do the off-season workouts. So my whole feeling is, and 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 plus, as this coach said. And we have a nutritionist here, and you're getting a free breakfast, free lunch, and not just free breakfast, free lunch, but like a free breakfast and free lunch that is really good for you, you know. And and you can, if you want to, you can pack up food when you leave there at 1:30 and and take it back to your hotel and eat it that night. So look, and that's a minor thing. It's absolutely minor, but his point was. I got guys who are coming here who basically are trying to do everything they can to make this team. And he goes, I just think that if the shoe were on the other foot and some of these veterans were in the shoes of these players, they would show up too. 100%. It's been a long time, but you know, Tom Brady over 20 years ago was one of those guys trying to make the team. He could probably get back into that mindset. He said there has to be a better way. And I was thinking about that, Peter, maybe the better way to get everybody on board of being there with these, with the mini camps and the OTAs, there's a portion where they go offense against defense. And even though it's June and even though they're not in pads, it turns into full speed because the coaches are there. And because that, that dynamic of the guys wanting to make the team shows up and Brady, as I mentioned, said that we shouldn't have these overly competitive drills yeah. in May and June as soon as they get offense and defense on the field together, it's going to happen. So maybe they fight to say, hey, just offense on the field in the morning. Defense will come in the afternoon. They can really focus on film, you know, learning, building the, the blocks of the offense for knowledge, and then go out in the field and kind of walk through implementation and maybe do some individual drills. Maybe that's how they get everybody on board because once they get everybody there together, it turns into a scrimmage without pads. Yeah. I I do think that, look, I, you know what's funny about this? There's some NFL coaches who are upset by it, but I, I mean, the people I talk to are not pulling their hair out because, look, they're going to go to camp, I think it's 47 days before opening day, uh, July 28th or whatever, it's 27th, I forget the date. And so there's going to be enough time to do what they need to do. I'm. That's why... I don't treat this as a huge story. It's it's an interesting story, and some people are really passionate about it. But in the uh, on the on the list of things people who read my column are concerned about, this is about 168th. Um, so I, you know, I don't I just don't I just don't don't treat it. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s. 1975 to be exact, with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. It's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie, and fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks.
Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. <laughs> Uh, but but anyway, so, Paul, we're going to get to the news of the day now. We're going to get to uh, Dev- our, my chat with Devontae Adams. Recorded this with him on Monday. Uh, and you'll hear from him his some of his real thoughts about Aaron Rodgers. And you can tell from him how much uh, he is in Aaron Rodgers' corner. So here's my conversation with Devontae Adams. Back on the podcast, so happy to be joined by Devontae Adams, the all-pro wide receiver, the Green Bay Packers. And Devontae, welcome. And I I would be remiss if I didn't start by asking you, you know, over the last three years, when I knew we were going to be talking over the last three years, you know, I looked at your production. It's 309 catches, 3,757 yards. 36 touchdowns and I just said I mean how can anybody right now be better and I know that there have been times where a lot of people have asked you are you the best at your position in the NFL mm-hmm. how do you see where you are right now in this great uh, run of wide receivers around the league I mean, there's a lot of them, man. I mean, you know, every time this question gets asked, there's always like some some big media coverage on it and, and all of that when <clears throat> it's portrayed like I'm like Muhammad Ali, like I'm in here and I'm the greatest. And like, it's not, <laughs> it's not about that. It's just my confidence in, uh, in, in who I am and what I can do out there on the field because I feel like I've earned the, the right to be able to say it um, and to earn the right to be able to feel the way that I do about my game. Um, you know, I put a lot, I put, I pour a really lot into, you know, my craft. So, um, you know, each year I try to elevate and get better and better. And I feel like I've been able to do that. Um, you know, it's a, it's a tough thing to go out there and be consistent and play at that level, especially when guys know that, you know, you're, you're one of the main focus of the, of the offense. And, um, you know, we, with the help of my teammates, my quarterback, uh, coaches and everything, I'm able to. Uh, go out and play at a pretty high level consistently. So I feel really good about where I am in my game. But I mean, it's it's a, it's only I'm only a piece of that football team. Without you know, like I just what you know the people I just stated, it'd be tough for me to go out there and do what I do. So I'm definitely appreciative for my teammates. But I can say with confidence that I think I'm the best uh, you know wide receiver in the world. Do you really take those comparisons personally? Like when you hear people talking about that, and if somebody says, well, Michael Thomas is the best or, or whatever, whoever is the best, do you take it personally? Um, no, not at all. I mean, it's, everyone's entitled to their own um, opinion of, of who they think is the best or, you know, what movie you like, what, you know, I think this is the best juice in the world right here. Tropicana <laughs> watermelon. And I have no sponsorship with them, so I have no, uh, no dog in this fight. But I think this is the best juice. You may think that, uh, you know, Welch's grape is the best and we're both entitled and neither of us can, you know, it, it, it's, it sucks for them because they are wrong in that instance, but they're, <laughs> they're, they're entitled to feel however they want to feel, man. Um, there's plenty of uh, talent out there. A lot of guys that I watch their tape to, you know, implement some of that into my game and create what I like to call Weapon X. So, um, you know, I got a lot of respect for these guys. There's some really good talent around the league. So, you know, I let people, you know, think what they want to think and, and like who they want to like because, you know, I can't really control that. All I can control is how I go out and run uh, out there on that field. You know, I've, I, I I ask players a lot, especially younger players, 
I said, who do you watch to try to learn from? So I'm curious, is there someone who you've watched in your career, maybe going back to college, where you took something from their game that you really felt helped you as a receiver? Absolutely. Still now, I mean, I watch Keenan Allen's tape. That's, that's, he's my favorite receiver in the league, and he knows that. He's one of my good friends. Um, you know, we, we got a lot of similarities of how we move out there on the field, how we, you know, our deception, the way we um, can influence uh, defensive backs. So I feel like a lot of what, you know, there's certain guys that I can watch their tape that I got respect for their game. But me trying to take what they do and put it in my game, I don't know how beneficial it would be for me um, just based off how I move and the way I like to play. Um, and, and that's fine because there's a million different ways to, to play this position. So, uh, you know, but but Keenan, we, you know, similar patterns of how we like to like to wiggle, um, you know, a lot of the unconventional hopping off the line of scrimmage and stuff like that. We both uh, live in each other's uh, book, as we like to call it. So um, it's, it's helped me out a lot. And there's definitely more guys around the league than that. Stefan Diggs, another technician that I respect a lot. Um, you know, DeAndre Hopkins, the way he goes up and gets that ball. I mean, it's, it's, it's really unmatched the way. Um, you know, he can just catch the ball. I like to say when he catches the ball, it's caught. So you might as well not even try to rake at it and do all that stuff because those mittens get on it or those talons. It's caught. So, uh, and obviously Julio is a guy that people for some reason aren't even speaking about as much. I don't know if it's because he was hurt this year or whatever, but I mean, he's been doing it at a high level for years and years and years now. So got a tremendous amount of respect for him, but Keenan's my guy. So Keenan and Diggs, I probably say those are my two guys as far as, who I watch to, you know, actually use what I'm seeing of what they're using on the field. You know, I was at a when they were still in San Diego. I was at a San Diego Chargers training camp practice one day when Philip Rivers was throwing, and Rivers was a little wild. Mm-hmm. And Keenan Allen made about five catches that day, where I swear his arms stretched out about three feet longer than they really were. Yeah. I said, "How in the world?" Is he making those catches? I, yeah. I'm glad you 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 like him that much because I think sometimes he gets lost and he gets forgotten a little bit in those in in the discussion about the best receiver in the game. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I definitely agree with that. He's one of the ones that, and I don't know what it's you know due to. I don't know if it's not loud enough or whatever because it's you know that's felt like that hurt me just sticking to football, which I'm okay with, but. There's certain guys who are louder and got more going on, you know, outside of just playing football. And, you know, they get more recognized for that sometimes. And then it'll mix and actually help as far as how people view them. Uh, some Somehow, I don't know how that works out. But, um, you know, I got I give a lot of credit to the guys like me, um, you know, and Kenan who go out there and just play ball and let their play speak for them. And, um, you know, we take care of our families and we just kind of normal dudes who just, you know, um, not so normal when it comes to wideout play. I got three Green Bay questions for you. The first one is, I always wonder this about players, specifically players who come from places that are pretty warm or, you know, are not Green Bay, Wisconsin. So you're from East Palo Alto, California, if I'm not mistaken. You went to to Fresno State. Mm. And I wondered, on draft night in 2014, when you get drafted by the Green Bay Packers, is your first thought, A, oh, my God, this is great. I get to go play with Aaron Rodgers. Or yeah. B, oh, my God, I'm going to the Arctic Circle. Yeah, yeah. That will – I have to say C, and C is let's figure out where Green Bay is geographically first because <laughs> I knew it was Midwest somewhere, but I couldn't tell you what state it was in. And, and I just – is. I mean, once you get over to that clump, um, you know – Illinois, uh, Wisconsin, all, all those states in the Midwest. Michigan, yeah. Michigan, yeah. It's, it's, I really, I truly did not know which state it was. So that's, I'll put that out there. Um, it is what it is. So I had to find out where we where it was first and then started setting in. I was still a little upset too because day one I didn't go. Had ESPN at the house and everything uh, there to cover the draft just in case, um, you know, I got picked by one of the teams that were interested. Didn't go, so I was still a little mad the next day. We all wore black um, that day because it was all the rest of the team's funeral who didn't pick me. Um, and uh, is yeah, that man, true? Was, yeah, it is. It's a it's a fact. We did. There's there's pictures of it. You can see it. We wore. We all had our black on um, for that reason. And uh, once I snapped out of it and kind of got over myself and being being all pissed off, 
um, definitely was filled with excitement and, and could not wait. Got uh, Aaron's number from my wideout coach, um, connected with him uh, later that day and just let him know basically I was ready to get to work. And then um, the rest is history. What is it like to be in Green Bay in the dead of winter? How do you deal with it? You stay in the house. Uh, you stay as warm as you can while you're out of practice and uh, just go out there and ball. Use, use the games as a as an outlet, man, because it's not so much you can do uh, being outdoors other than practicing and playing in the game. So um, I just try to take full advantage of that and, and just enjoy those uh, those Sundays out there. What's been your reaction in the last couple of weeks to the, the stories about Aaron wanting out? Um, I mean, it's been tough, man. It's, you know, I've obviously spoke to him a little bit. Um, can't really share too much of what we've talked about, but, um, you know, it's, it's just something that, you know, part of this business is you, you got to keep people happy. Um, and it's, it's tough because, you know, you have so much time invested in one place and you've done so much for one place. You just kind of hope to see that, that respect, uh, um, you know, reciprocated, I guess you could say. And, when it doesn't work out exactly how you want, you have issues like this, but we're just being positive and, you know, I'm just sticking to my training, doing what I have to do to put myself in a position to be ready, whoever my quarterback is um, come season. Hope we're praying that it's still Aaron, um, just so we can continue what, we, what we've had going this whole time. But, uh, yeah, just, just going to continue working to see how it plays out. Do you have a gut feeling whether he will be a Packer this year or not? I don't, man. I'm just trying to be positive, keep my mind on it. I don't even want to, you know, bring anything else into this universe. I just want to think good thoughts and um, kind of downplay it in my head and just hope that, you know, at some point it just goes back to normal and uh, we show up to camp and everybody's ready to rock. One, <clears throat> one last thing about the Packers. How long did it take you to get over the loss to Tampa? And when you think about that game, what hurts the most? Um, I mean, it hurts the most that I've been uh, at, I've completed seven seasons in the NFL. I've been to four NFC championship games. So without, uh, without appearing in the Super Bowl yet. So it begins to get a little bit, um, uh, what's I don't, I don't know what the word is. I don't want to say discouraged because that sounds a little bit too, too intense, but it gets to a point where it's like, man, is this even a real thing? Like, I don't even know if the Super Bowl is a real thing right now because I just keep getting right there and, and just come up a little bit short, but um, it took a while to get over that Tampa loss just because, you know, I really and truly thought we were at home. Uh, I just knew we were going to Super Bowl and getting in is the hard part. And I knew once we were in, we we're going to win it. So um, not being able to do that, it was tough. But, um, you know, we got to have the short, short memory. You're ready to come back for this next season and, uh, you know, go on a run. Devontae, I know you. Uh, are with me today because you were just dying to talk to me. But there's one other reason. You are working with uh, Justin Jefferson yes. for a program called Building Better Lives yep, uh, through Optimum Nutrition, Nutrition which, which to me, when I read about this, I just said, this is really a good thing for premier athletes to be involved in because people look at you. Yeah. Kids will look at you. People from where you grew up will look at you and want to sort of emulate what you were doing. Mm -hmm. Explain what Building Better Lives is. Um, well, I mean, I partnered, like you said, I partnered with Optimum uh, Nutrition a um, little, little while back. Just um, we're really on the same page. I feel like the, the company and myself, as far as how we view um, putting other people who are underprivileged and uh, in better positions. So the, you know, they provide the, the resources to under um, resource communities, um, such as the one that I, I come from, um, putting these kids in a better position to be able to maximize their potential and, um, you know, make the most and at, at a bare minimum, just be healthy and feel better about themselves. So um, when I, you know, when I found out about this and talked with them about this project, I knew it was perfect for me because, um, you know, giving back is something that I'm, you know, really, really into. I've been into that since I've gotten into the league, just because being a young kid from East Palo Alto, I didn't have much. So to be, um, you know, a part of something like this now where I can help people who were like me at that point, um, you know, it makes it, it's a, it's an easy call for me to be able to team up with them because they got the best products, um, you know, the most trustworthy um, and, and puts me in a good position to, you know, succeed being that I train at such a high level. Uh, recovery is so huge for me as well. So, 
um, best recovery and, and supplements in the game. And I can truly say that it's, it's helped me out uh, with seasons like last year, being banged up a few times, just not feeling great after a game and being able to come back and, and have the confidence that I'll be ready to go by next uh, that next game. Um, you know, just my, my game is all about the sharp movements and being able to move. So if my body's not feeling right, then my game won't be all the way right. So um, getting with them from the Building Better Lives, um, that they can also go um, on buildingbetterlives.com. Uh, you can check it out yourself out there to the for the viewers. But um, getting with this, uh, it's, it's been a, a great partnership, and, and I've loved every moment of it. One other thing about this. So you, as well as, you know, trying to show people how to, how to maybe eat better, uh, promote better nutrition and all that. There's also going to be some, uh, you know, some fitness resources, yes. right? Put in your hometown and in Justin Jefferson's hometown in Louisiana. Is that right? Yeah, more is, I mean, and that's the biggest part because uh, there's a lot of people out there that are willing to, you know, make them put themselves in a better position through nutrition and uh, exercise, but, being in an area where you know you don't really have those resources, Optimum stepping in to be able to fulfill that has been huge. And I know that that's one of the things I didn't have a facility with growing up, where I didn't have you know the the resources to be able to actually put myself in elite training uh, spot. So to see that they have that and that they are providing that now, that's going to be the the biggest game changer in the world for kids um, in a community like what I come from. Devonte Adams, really appreciate you joining me this week, and uh, best of luck with this program. It's a really laudable, good program, and um, I hope you continue to play football with Aaron Rodgers. Uh, so do I, man. I appreciate you having me. It's been a great, uh, great experience. Thank you. My thanks to Devonte Adams, and of course to Paul Burmeister. We spent quite a while. Uh, breaking down everything's going on in the NFL. And it's just an interesting time, supposed to be a slow time, but the NFL has figured out ways to never have a slow time. And that includes making the schedule get released instead of on April 20, where it's crammed right before the draft starts. Now it's going to be forever, I believe, a couple of weeks after the draft, so it's another little tentpole event that the NFL can go nuts about and put on NFL Network for three hours. But I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. We'll be back next week with another one, hoping to have some stories from inside that process with Howard Katz and Mike North of the NFL scheduling team. So come back next week for the next podcast. And thank you for listening to the Peter King Podcast. love a classic chocolate chip cookie. Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.